ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show lined up. And don't worry if you have Bitcoin ETF fatigue, I have good news for you. Most, now I, I said most of what I'll cover this week does not involve that topic. I'm giving everyone a little break, probably much needed. But in all seriousness, uh, really a fantastic show with four tremendous guests. I'll start with Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. We're going to take a look at the ESG ETF space this year, look at some of the standout success stories. I want to talk about what investor interest has been like with flows into these products and just generally discuss what's next for ESG ETFs overall. And that will set me up perfectly for my next two guests. I'll be joined by both Laura Segafredo and Sarah Greenberg. Laura is Global Head of Sustainable Research, ETF, and Index Investments at BlackRock. And Sarah is Executive Director, ESG Client Coverage at MSCI. I'm going to tell you right now, both of these individuals are extremely passionate and certainly highly knowledgeable about sustainable investing. So we're really going to dive in here and discuss ESG considerations in a portfolio. I would say specifically around why climate considerations are driving a lot of the investor interest here. And then we'll also get into how investors can measure ESG performance and determine whether they're actually making a difference, which I think is the goal of a lot of ESG investors. So look forward to that. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Will Hershey, co-founder and CEO of Roundhill Investments. The timing is absolutely perfect because last week, Facebook announced this name change to Meta which, of course, elicited all sorts of memes and other sort of jokes. But guess who has the Metaverse ETF and the Meta ticker? None other than Roundhill and Will Hershey. So we'll definitely discuss that. And then I also want to have a conversation around this intersection of social media and ETFs, because I would say few firms are better utilizing platforms like Twitter than Roundhill. And not just from a personal standpoint with Will, but really in how he and, and, and the firm are approaching ETF development and marketing. I just feel like they're really taking advantage of social media. Uh, so be sure to stick around for that. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, welcome back to the podcast. Always delighted to be here, Nate. 
Okay, so we are going to talk ESG today, but uh, I have a quick bait and switch just because I can't help myself. (laughs) I have to get your hot take on the first Bitcoin ETFs coming to market. Because look, you and I have covered this topic for literally years on this podcast, and I feel like you're at least owed the opportunity to comment on this, right? That's the least I can do. So uh, just briefly, what have been your first impressions of everything so far? Yeah, it definitely feels like a culmination of years worth of conversations and discussions between us, for sure. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, I suppose, and not surprised at the same time that the first Bitcoin futures ETF had such a big debut. Uh, I think we all sort of expected that it was going to blow, uh, you know, blow out the water when it came to assets. I'm not sure any of us foresaw that it would uh, overtake GLD in terms of hitting a billion dollars in assets uh, so quickly. <clears throat> but, you know, it, 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 it had a strong ba- debut. Uh, the second one from Valkyrie BTF, that's also having a strong debut. Maybe not quite to the same extent, but, uh, you know, BITO, that's up to 1.2 billion in net flows. Uh, as of yesterday, and BTF is up to 53 million. So it's still quite respectable for your first week on the market. Maybe not first mover money, but still respectable. And, and look, Bitcoin futures ETFs, they have a lot of pros and cons. I am on the record as saying that this particular product, I think, is going to help advisors because it can help them meet clients where they are. Crypto uh, is something that clients want, and now it's going to come in an easy-to-use ETF package, right? It's going to be something that advisors can trade on existing brokerage platforms and use their existing uh, risk and and portfolio management software to incorporate into portfolios and so on and so forth. It's going to be a much more seamless uh, and time-saving and bandwidth-saving experience for advisors who are helping their clients. I just, I think that alone is, is good. I mean, from a quality of life perspective, I suppose that is good. Any concerns or any concerns around the position limits? I sent out a tweet last night. So ProShares has already moved into the December contracts. Um, As you are probably aware, there's a position limit in the monthly contracts of 4,000 and then 5,000 contracts overall. Uh, right now, they have a little under 4,000 in November, and then they, like I said, moved into, I think they have like 75 or 80 contracts in December, so plenty of bandwidth there. But do, are you concerned about that at all? Yeah, I, you know, you read my mind, right? I think that is the biggest uh, downside to Bitcoin futures uh, as opposed to spot Bitcoin exposure, that you have to deal with the vagaries of the futures market. And that means grappling with not just roll cost and contango and backwardation and things that I think everybody had on their radar before the, the fund launched, but, uh, you know, position position limits, which is something I feel like I've been screaming about for, <laughs> for like two years, ever since uh, the, you know, in, in the beginning of um, 2020, when uh, USO had all of those issues with uh, the position, like striking position limits and uh, people were just piling into the fund and it hit, uh, it bounced up against accountability, accountability limits for the CFTC and it had to swap into uh, different exposures, uh, different contracts across the, the futures curve. We're sort of seeing the same thing happen now in the Bitcoin uh, futures ETF, uh, though I, I would argue maybe not exactly the same because I think, um, you know, when that happened, it was a little bit of a surprise. Now, you know, the precedent has been set, right? So it's um, it's it's definitely something to remember when you're dealing with a futures-based ETF. It is not going to have the same risk and return profile as just going out and having a Coinbase account. It just isn't. So, uh, yeah. I have a great solution to all this, and that's that the SEC can approve a spot Bitcoin ETF, solve all these problems. <laughs> but look, I'm going to pivot us to ESG because you and I could talk about this for, for a long time. And, and what I will mention, you, you said uh, Bido overtook GLD, fastest ETF to a billion dollars. Uh, Bido is closing in on the most successful launch of 2021. 
And if you look, the ETF right ahead of Bido on that launch leaderboard this year is the BlackRock U.S. Carbon Transition Readiness ETF, ticker LCTU, which I, I will note, this held a top spot for most of the year in terms of uh, best launches. It's now been surpassed by the Vanguard Ultra Short Bond ETF, ticker VUSB, and the Nuveen Growth Opportunities ETF, NUGO, which I found that interesting just because that's an active, non-transparent ETF. But in any event, uh, still nearly $1.5 billion into LCTU. It's international counterpart, LCTD. That's also one of the top launches of 2021. But if you look further down the list, Laura, I mean, there have been quite a few successful ESG ETF launches this year. I, I guess let's start there. As you look at the list of launches, what has stood out to you on the ESG side? Yeah, I, you can't start this conversation without uh, obviously talking about LCTU, right? Because that is the that was the biggest launch, as you said, of the year. But I think it's notable that since its debut in April, there's pretty much been crickets in the fund, right? It hasn't had, it's barely had a single inflow day since its launch in April. And uh, the same thing goes for LCTD, the, the XUS version of it. And so I think uh, these were products that were clearly designed for a particular use, perhaps a particular investor uh, use case and and so on. And, and now that that has been fulfilled, it's simply just not taking off in an organic way among uh, the investment community, which is fine. I mean, you know, BlackRock's crying to the bank on those, right? So, um, you know, I think there are some really fascinating ESG uh, launches this year that have, uh, you know, really just kind of just I've been blown away. I mean, I think top first and foremost, the one that I think is the most interesting, even though it's not the most necessarily in terms of gaining uh, net new net assets, right, uh, is vote. It's the the engine number one uh, S&P 500 ETF uh, clone. Basically, what it does is it buys the 500 largest uh, companies in the U.S., and holds them specifically with the purpose of uh, voting the proxy shares, right? And, and voting those shares in a way that is um, designed to force or, or encourage or however you want to say it, um, push the companies towards more carbon-friendly, environmentally-friendly, eco-friendly practices. And it's, uh, you know, something that you and I have talked about on this podcast quite a bit the uh, the the whole idea of putting your money where your mouth is when it comes to ESG investing. You know, how can you possibly own Amazon uh, or not? You know, exclude Amazon from your portfolio, but then buy things on Amazon, right? Like it's it's that sort of um, in my mind, I see it as is is that uh, you know you, you've sort of convinced me that there maybe is a little bit of a, a hypocrisy there. Well, here this fund takes that approach of. Uh, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna put our money where our mouth is. We're gonna vote our proxy shares. We're gonna you know try to make change happen from the inside uh, at Amazon and all these other companies. So, and the campaigns work. We saw that with Exxon, right, where they they took over. I think it was three board seats. Right, just it was it was um, astonishing. And then they launched the ETF a few uh, weeks or months later. So, you know, one of the things I think is really uh, key about this particular fund is its expense ratio, right? It is It costs five basis points. That makes it competitive with any of the other uh, S&P 500 ETFs out there, your spies, your views, your IBVs, which are what, they're like three basis points. So you can't have the argument any longer or the argument that, oh, well, I would love to invest in ESG, but it's so much more expensive. And like, I don't want, I can't do that to my clients and so on and so forth. That argument doesn't hold water here because vote is on par with your just general market beta uh, ETF. So I, I think of all of the ETFs that launched, and there were a few, I mean, there's um, a GSFP and uh, the humankind one I think is really interesting. There's a there's a affordable housing ETF owns from Impact Shares. That's really cool. Just a lot of really neat ETFs have launched in the ESG space, but Vote is by far my ET my ESG ETF of the year. I think. So. Yeah, you flagged a few there, just based on assets into the funds that I had also flagged on my end. Just a couple notes about Vote. What What's interesting there is there's already been about two hundred and thirty five, two hundred forty million into that ETF, and 
that you're right. That's just plain vanilla exposure to basically the S&P 500. But it shows that there is some pent up demand there by investors where they want this activist approach. They, they want the investment right. manager actively engaging on ESG issues. I think that that's noteworthy. Um, the humankind U.S. stock ETF you mentioned, that's over 100 million. And basically what, what that ETF does is it looks at how companies impact society and whether they're impacting society in a positive manner. And they have some criteria around that. The impact shares affordable housing MBS ETF ticker owns that you mentioned. That's also over 100 million. And that focuses on uh, mortgage loans made to minority families, uh, lower income families, areas with persistent poverty. So I, I think certainly interesting. GSFP, which, which I spotlighted on the show like a month ago, the Goldman Sachs Future Planet Equity ETF, that has about $75 million in it. So off to a pretty good start. Um, another one I'll bring up just because you and I always talk crypto is the Veridi Cleaner Energy Crypto Mining and Semiconductor ETF, ticker RIGS. That's only at about 15 million, seeks to own clean energy crypto mining companies. But again, another interesting take on ESG. And I guess, you know, as I go through that list, Laura, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about how this definition of ESG is evolving, because that's a pretty diverse group when you look at what those funds are actually doing, right? Those aren't just plain vanilla ESG exposure. We put vote aside that that's not plain vanilla ESG exposure. What do you think is happening here just in terms of ESG evolution? Well, you know, let me let me say one thing about those uh, ETFs that you just listed off there that I think is interesting. Um, almost all of them had organic inflows. Like it wasn't just what we saw with LCTU, right, where it was one big inflow day and then nothing. Uh, you know, HKND, the Humankind ETF, that's had a couple of creates here, a couple million in creates there. Like it's it's had inflow days for. The majority of its lifetime. Same thing with owns. You know, this is these are, and what that says to me is that these are uh, grassroots ideas that are really kind of taking off with investors. They're 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 uh, may not be billion dollar funds yet, but they're concepts, they're ideas that investors like. We actually saw the same sort of phenomenon with FRDM, right? The the Freedom One Hundred fund that uh, you know. Uh, it, it crossed 100 million this past year or a couple of months ago, I think, you know, that was another fund that had a couple of million here, a couple of million there and eventually grew to a sustainable size. So one of the things that I think is very interesting about the ESG ETF space is that this is one of the few remaining places in the ETF industry where new folks, where uh, the little guy, so to speak, can find success with a cool idea and 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 hit 100 million hit beyond 100 million um with a you know a cool idea and a dream or whatever so i think that's an interesting trend that is uh defining esg but also you know you said that these are all very diverse etfs they sort of are and they sort of aren't right because you look at all of them and the thing that that connects them even with vote to an extent is carbon transition as a theme, right? So I think folks are starting to see ESG less as three discrete pillars, E, S, and G. And, and they're looking at these ETFs more as a tool to aid in the transition to a net zero carbon emissions economy. And in doing so, so you see things like carbon readiness and carbon transition and alternative energy and green tech and all these things. And then in the names, they're all hitting upon the same truth, which is that environmental concerns uh, are first and foremost what investors and issuers can wrap their heads around, what they care about. But environmental issues, you solve the environmental issue, you also are addressing the social and governance issues at the same time, right? Because you solve the environmental, let's just say uh, water quality, right? You, you make water quality better in local communities. Well, that's also a social uh, aspect too. There's a, a, a very strong social case for making water quality better in you know in emerging economies. And um, you make uh, uh, you look at it, 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 I, I, I'm I. I'm very excited by that. I think it's an interesting and more nuanced take on the eco-friendly uh, approach 
than we've seen in the past. And I'd like to, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where it evolves from here. On the uh, climate or environmental side, this ETF didn't launch this year, but one of the biggest success stories, I, I think probably in ETFs overall over the past year plus or so, is this Crane Shares Global Carbon ETF, ticker CRBN, now over a billion dollars with the vast majority of that coming in 2021. This uh, holds carbon allowance uh, futures. D- does that surprise you at all? Or does that fit with what you were saying, just in terms of this focus on the environment? Yeah, you want to talk about a fund that found its moment, right? Caribbean was, uh, I I think this is an interesting fund because the flows, you know, I was talking about before, the flows are, are largely organic. It's only had a few days of net outflows. People are just continually putting in a couple of million here, a couple million there. And even when there are outflows, it's just tiny little redemptions. The thing about Caribbean is that it promises a solution to the very existential threat we all face, the you know the climate change threat, it promises a solution that I think Wall Street and the financial community can sort of wrap our heads around. Like we understand the idea of carbon trading, uh, you know, financial instruments very well. Uh, it's it's a it's a context we we can grok, I suppose, and um, that I think has helped. Uh, you know, rather than um, say, well, we're going to uh, invest in companies that have a positive impact on their environments and on their communities. Like that's a hard thing to necessarily quantify and everybody quantifies it differently. Carbon uh, allowances trading, that is something that can be easily and concretely defined uh, in numbers that everybody can understand and uh you know can learn and 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 internalize and i i just i think like i said right moment right product uh, i'm not surprised it has taken off as it does laura just a couple minutes left if we take a step back and look at esg etf flows overall I, i'm curious how would you characterize this year like has it been a success or flows in line with what you were expecting coming into the year so, you know, I ran some numbers and uh, there have been about $34 billion in new net assets flowing into ESG ETFs year to date. Uh, the space is now $111 billion in assets under management. That's just incredible growth in the few short years in which we've been talking about this. I remember not so long ago coming on this podcast and talking about $6 billion in inflows as a banner year for flows into ESG products. Like this was going to be the year it all changed. So that said, it's still a bit of a drop of the bucket, a drop in the bucket, right? With all the flows going into ETFs this year, we've had $715 billion in new net inflows year to date. Um, we are pushing... $7 trillion in assets under management for the ETF space, which I mean, I think is kind of bonkers to me just to even think about. But what that means is that ESG represents just 5% of the net inflows year to date into uh, ETFs. That's not a huge amount, and it's roughly on pace for what we've seen in years past. And the funds that are really kind of blowing it out of the water are the funds that are, uh, I mean, Shouldn't be surprising to anybody. They're the iShares and Vanguard products that can be used in model portfolios, right? And and so those two companies are, they're the biggest companies for a reason. They have the name recognition. They have uh, distribution reach. They can place them inside their own model portfolios and pe- people will reach for those funds for their own models and so on. And, and the funds that are taking off are designed to be replacement type strategies that give you the same sort of market beta exposure without any of the worst offenders. And you can just kind of easily swap them in and out. So um, I'm not surprised that it should be those ETFs that are taking off. But uh, I think if anybody was expecting ESG ETFs to uh, become the largest segment overnight, it's it's not going to happen. But you know, it's also not shrinking either. So, well, and as we touched on too, again, just the product innovation here, regardless of what you think about ESG, you have to tip your hat to, sure. to the innovation that, that we're seeing. But Laura, great stuff as always. I, I got to tell you, I know listeners are very happy to hear about something other than Bitcoin ETFs for me, even though I started you <laughs> off there. I think it was very healthy for us to talk about something other than that. 
Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Take care. That was Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. I am now very pleased to be joined by both Laura Segafredo, who is Global Head of Sustainable Research, ETF, and Index Investments at BlackRock, and Sarah Greenberg, Executive Director, ESG Client Coverage at MSCI. Of course, BlackRock offers the iShares lineup of ETFs, largest ETF issuer in the world, over $3 trillion in global ETF assets. And MSCI is a premier provider of indexes, and portfolio construction and risk management tools and research. And I would say both are really leading the charge in ESG or sustainable investing. Laura, Sarah, a pleasure having you join me today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so a lot we're going to cover, but I want to start by first hearing more about each of your backgrounds. I'd love to hear how you actually became involved in sustainable investing because this isn't something that happens overnight, right? You don't just roll out of bed and start focusing on things like climate considerations and investor portfolios. And clearly, you both have deep passion and certainly high expertise in this space. So, Laura, I'll start with you. What's been your path here? Yeah, thank you. So um, it's been a long time coming. Uh, in fact, I'm a relative newbie to the financial industry, and I've spent most of my career outside of it. Um, I have uh, studied um, climate science, uh, and I've worked on the, at the nexus between energy and environmental issues for a long time, for more than 15 years now, in a variety of different roles. I worked the power industry. Um, I worked in uh, philanthropy at the Climate Works Foundation. I worked in academia at the Earth Institute at Columbia University, uh, and then in NGOs devoted to uh, thinking about how to direct capital flows to the transition to low carbon. Before I arrived at BlackRock about five years ago, I uh, started in fixed income, so thinking about how to incorporate climate considerations into the investment process there across all different fixed income asset classes. And then finally now on the ETF and index uh, investment side at the firm. And Sarah, what about you? How did you get involved in the space and what's your career arc been? Sure. Um, so I, I've been with MSCI for 15 years, focused on ESG and climate throughout my time. Uh, really, straight out of my undergrad degree, I was looking for something that was at the intersection of finance and sustainable development. And I found Innovest Strategic Advisors. So my, my role at MSCI has changed over the course of my time. Um, today, I leave our, lead our client coverage organization in the Americas and really focus on market education with institutional investors, um, helping them build ESG and climate capabilities. I, I also uh, took quite a bit of time in, to focus on continuing education and did an MBA at NYU in 2010. And I, I think it's really interesting how at that time, ESG and climate was really not part of the MBA program, um, whereas today we see leading organizations make it a, a core part of the, the curriculum. And before we dive in here, can either or both of you just touch on the partnership between BlackRock and MSCI, especially as it relates to sustainable investing? How, how do you work together? Sarah, I'll let you take that one. 
Uh, sure. So um, BlackRock is one of MSCI's largest ESG and climate clients. Um, we support BlackRock in, in a number of ways. Of course, they are a leading institution that's building out sustainable and climate investing solutions through the ETF lineup. And MSCI uh, provides the ESG indexes that support many of the iShares sustainable investing ETF suite. We, we also are really impressed with what BlackRock has done around their net zero commitments. Um, so there, there is, a, of course, a, a broad relationship using our, our ESG research content and our index solutions. One of the areas that, that I think is has garnered the most interest is BlackRock's leading efforts around transparency. And so we've supported BlackRock to use MSCI ESG uh, research content to provide reporting and transparency on the ESG characteristics of their ETF suite. So I, I'll, let, I'll let Laura talk a little bit more about it, but those are just some of the, the core areas that, um, that our organizations work together on. Yeah, Laura, anything you would add to that? Well, I'll say that, like uh, I said, this is a long-standing partnership, and we, we work very closely with MSCI, and like she mentioned, basically on two fronts. Uh, first is launching products that use MSCI indices for our ESG suite. So, for example, of our 113 sustainable products globally, 58 are indexed to MSCI indices, so that's more than half. And then, of course, the other important part of the partnership is really related to transparency. And so all the data, all the sustainability data we provide on our fund pages, uh, so for example, greenhouse gas emissions, ESG scores, et cetera, all the sustainability characteristics of our funds and portfolios, they are sourced from MSCI. So, so that's an important aspect as well that we like to emphasize. Okay, so I would say putting Bitcoin ETFs aside, probably no other area of investing has garnered as much attention over the past few years as ESG. There's been all sorts of discussion and debate, uh, certainly investor interest in this area. I'd love to have you both talk about this growth and interest around sustainable investing, and in particular, the climate piece, the environmental piece, which from my perspective... That seems like the biggest driver of the conversation here, right? There are certainly other important aspects, but I feel like the climate piece really garners the headlines. So, Laura, do you want to expand on this? Why the growing interest in ESG and, and why the focus on uh, climate considerations? Yes, certainly. I think that a large part of the reason is that uh, we are all experiencing the effects of our planet warming, right? In the last 15 years, uh, Earth has warmed at a rate equivalent to four Hiroshima atomic bomb detonations per second. And since 1850, the global average temperatures have already increased by 1.1 degrees Celsius. Um, and obviously, we see that uh, the alarming number of catastrophic climate events has grown in both intensity and frequency, uh, raging fires, droughts hurricanes and other natural disasters of biblical proportions that's basically you know happening all the time just this summer in the u.s more than 400 people have died um, because of catastrophic climate events that's just a pretty insane number if you ask me so clearly that's kind of top of mind uh, of our clients how do we adapt to a world that's uh, moving in this direction but also how do we uh, make sure that our portfolios are prepared for uh, the transition to a low-carbon world that's necessary to avoid the worst effects of these uh, sort of catastrophic climate events. And there are some green shoots in addressing the crisis, right? We see innovations are making zero-carbon technologies cheaper and widely available. There's expectations of inevitable policy actions to reduce emissions and also avoid social disruptions. And then consumers are also increasingly voting with their wallets by preferring greener products. And, and you know, the, that also has benefited our sustainable ETF uh, product suite. So that's definitely what's happening here. Now, when we say, you know, we came out pretty strongly, and Sarah mentioned this earlier, uh, that saying that um, climate risk is investment risk. And what we mean by that is that investors who don't consider the effects of climate change on the global economy and on asset prices just aren't seeing the whole picture. Um, when we think about ways that climate affects um, the, the price of relative value of assets in markets, we think about two different channels. We think about physical risks. So I talked about the destruction of capital caused by changing weather patterns and natural catastrophes uh, that are becoming both more frequent and more damaging. 
But I, there's also another aspect to it, which is transition risks related to moving our economy away from fossil fuels. Uh, and the important thing to know here is that while transition risks are transitory, meaning, you know, once you've affected this transition to a lower zero carbon world, uh, the, that's done. But the physical consequences of climate change are locked in long term and will only get worse if not addressed. And so in our view, addressing this problem is actually, from a social perspective, much more beneficial than not addressing it. Um, and so having said that, how do we think about how to invest uh, in climate for our clients? And we sort of have some options here. I'm, I'm happy to go through them if, if that's helpful. And, and Yes, please. Yeah. So um, we, we basically think that we are at a point where data is becoming much better, thanks a lot to the work SCI has done, et cetera. And we can really leverage a lot of this information and the data that we have uh, to think about how we can uh, build strategies that can, use, uh, can be used alongside or as replacements for traditional strategies or uh, to target environmental goals within a climate investment approach. So the first uh, option here is to reduce exposure to carbon emissions and fossil fuels. So this is a, I call it the, you know, sleep well at night uh, strategy. This is these are basically strategies and products that, for example, screen out fossil fuels uh, or poor performers along climate uh, characteristics, for example, the high, the companies with the highest carbon intensity within their sector, you know, among their peers. And so here you're simply reducing your exposure uh, to, to these kinds of activities, which is, you know, perfectly legitimate, I would say still by far the most common entry point into ESG or climate considerations for our clients. Um, then the second approach that you have, though, is an approach that allows you to both reduce exposure to these two companies that are poorly positioned for the transition, but also increasing exposure to companies that are better uh, positioned for the transition. So we call this a prioritize, prioritizing companies based on climate opportunities and risks. So here you get the opportunity uh, angle as well, right? And again, here, these advances in data and disclosures on climate-related business activities really allows investors to pursue strategies that are designed uh, to do this, to, to get the opportunities from the transition as well. And then finally, the third, and these two strategies, the reduce and the prioritize, they can be replacements of traditional uh, uh, portfolio exposures. And then the third option is to target climate themes and impact outcomes. So here we're thinking, for example, uh, investing uh, in specific industries or themes or asset classes that represent opportunities in the, in the transition economy. Think about green bonds, think about clean energy technologies and things of that sort. That's an excellent overview. And Sarah, I want to ask you, from the conversations that I've had, I feel like one of the biggest points of debate and even concern from an investor perspective is how can they know if their portfolios are actually aligning with their climate goals? And I think along with that, my sense is the end goal for many ESG investors is they want to make a difference, right? They, they want to positively impact climate change. And as Laura just went through the, the, the different ways to potentially express this in a portfolio, how can investors know that? Like, how can they know they're making a difference? It just seems like such a nebulous area. Yeah, and I have to say it, it is the, the number one question we get from our clients. So with MSCI's ESG and climate research clients, which is about 1,900 institutional investors globally, um, many of whom are signatories to initiatives like the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, which represents $6.6 .6 trillion of assets, or the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, the Net Zero uh, Investment Consulting and Banking Alliance. There's so much, so much momentum around it. The, these organizations have really laid out a challenge, which is to, um, to have uh, uh, signatories uh, demonstrate that on their their path to net zero by uh, in most cases by by 2050, and so a key component of these initiatives is looking at the companies that that an organization holds or is invested in, and understanding that that company's commitment and pathway towards net zero. Um, so MSCI, we we offer over 700 climate related data points to our clients, and it does include things like scope one, two, and three carbon emissions that can be used to calculate carbon a footprint uh, carbon footprints across multi-asset class portfolios. 
But we've seen that there's a much greater sophistication in the requirements that our clients have. And we have data that captures companies' pathway along the low-carbon transition. Uh, We call the the low-carbon transition risk score. We have physical risk assessments. We also publish climate scenario analysis that shows how much a, a company and a portfolio stands to lose or gain under different warming scenarios. And then very importantly, just in the last few weeks, we published something called the implied temperature rise. And that measures a company fund and a portfolio's alignment to different degrees of warming. Now, a lot of the data that we're producing, of course, is information that we we make available to our clients in in its most robust format. Um, We also have tools that can be used to uh, run risk statistics, to look at portfolios, and to produce uh, reports that meet requirements like the the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures and and other types of reports. Um, But we've also started uh, over the past year to make portions of our information available for free on our website. And we began to do this with MSCI's ESG ratings and our ESG fund ratings. Those both cover over, uh, well, the the ESG ratings, almost 15,000 issuers, 650,000 securities. We we made about a quarter of that information available publicly. So for the MSCI ACWI index. Climate, again, is the top top of the agenda for all of our clients, we we followed a a similar path. So uh, today we are uh, publishing something called the the implied temperature rise, uh, which looks at the current and projected greenhouse gas emissions of of almost 10,000 publicly listed companies. And we look at uh, uh, how uh, they're aligned to global global temperature based on their carbon budget that if we want to keep this uh, the warming below two degrees Celsius. So we, we now make about uh, almost 3,000, so 2,900 2, companies, the implied temperaturized data available for free on our, our website. The, the other important tool that we have that can help investors is something called the MSCI Net Zero Tracker. And we're publishing this on a quarterly basis on our website, on our our public website, and it tracks the collective progress of listed companies toward global climate goals, essentially showing that today, uh, if we look across the broad market, uh, it's aligned to a three degrees Celsius warming. And less than half of companies listed um, align to about 43% of listed companies align with the goal of limiting temperature rise to two degrees, and only 10% of companies today align to the 1.5 degree warming. So for for our clients, for institutional investors, and for for uh, financial professionals, there there is better data that can be used to assess companies, to assess funds, and to assess portfolios. Uh, and, and much of that data uh, is now starting to be available in the public domain through MSCI.com. And we've seen a huge response from issuers who are trying to understand what their transition path is and how they're being uh, viewed and considered by institutional investors and, and other providers of capital. Just a couple of minutes left here. Sarah, as you went through that, I mean, the two words that really stuck out to me are data and transparency. And I'm curious, is there anything else you would highlight as critical factors for investors evaluating the various ESG ETFs and approaches out there, whether that be cost or, you know, does it come down to transparency and methodology, the data itself you mentioned, just because there has been so much ESG product proliferation, right? There are a lot of ESG ETFs on the market. So what are some words of wisdom you might leave for investors? I'll, I'll answer that that first, and I, I don't know if Laura wants to weigh in as well, but we, we've also seen a, a huge uh, increase in global regulation to prevent greenwashing um, in Europe uh, uh, and, and other places, including here in the U.S., where we have regulators who are beginning to evaluate and consider uh, both how companies must disclose ESG factors and also how institutional investors that are constructing ESG products need to demonstrate that it's not just greenwashing, that the products really have uh, a systematic process to integrate quality ESG and climate research into the portfolio construction process. 
stuff. In, in most cases, what we're seeing as a starting point is, is uh, increased scrutiny and more stringent requirements for rep- uh, transparency and reporting. And so um, we, we've seen that in, in Europe, and we expect that to follow in other uh, global uh, you know, around the world globally, which is to show and measure ESG performance of the fund compared to the market cap benchmark um, and to demonstrate what data is being used. Uh, so I, I would say for, for investors that are that are considering investing in ESG funds, um, a, a really important consideration is, you know, not all funds are constructed with the with uh, with the same objectives is to understand one, the fund construction rules, how data is being used. And then two, that that really important question of transparency. How are fund managers providing clear and transparent metrics that actually demonstrate the fund is meeting the stated investment objectives? Laura, any parting words of wisdom? Yeah, I'll say Sarah really outlined this very well. I would say that I think we're sort of at the beginning of a a greater push towards uh, data standardization and disclosures, especially on the climate side. We've certainly seen ESG data came a long way over the last decade, both in terms of uh, asset coverage, so more and more data for more issuers, but also in terms of quality and alignment of some of the frameworks behind how ESG data are, how ESG ratings are calculated. So I think we're at the beginning of that for climate data. Uh, we certainly see more metrics being made available, but also we see more metrics that are investment useful. So we are in a, in a position where we can translate some of these insights into um, information that can uh, that can give an edge, I think, uh, to investors, depending, as Sarah said, of course, on the objectives of the fund. Um, I would say another thing is that um, there is a clear, we, we think that there is a clear relationship between uh, preparedness for the transition to low carbon, for example, and perfor- financial performance of companies. And we have launched products that basically are underpaid by, by that uh, by that thinking. So I think that we'll see more of that coming. I think we're at the beginning, but we are really just starting. Financial markets are just starting to appreciate the potential impact of this shift towards sustainability on asset prices. And certainly data becoming better and more standardized can only help that. And, you know, of course, I think that we, we feel very strongly that we're here to help clients to provide transparency, but also explain how these data and, and, and this information can be used to make us better investors and better serve their interests ultimately. Well, again, an absolute pleasure having you both on the podcast. Just tremendous insight this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. That was Laura Segafredo, Global Head of Sustainable Research, ETF and Index Investments at BlackRock, and Sarah Greenberg, Executive Director, ESG Client Coverage at MSCI. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I am now joined by Will Hershey, co-founder and CEO of Roundhill Investments, who currently offers seven ETFs approaching $700 million in assets. That includes an ETF they just launched last week, the Roundhill IO Digital Infrastructure ETF, ticker BITE. Great ticker. I always say I'm not sure anyone has a better ticker symbol game than Roundhill and Will Hershey, who is now on the line with me from New York. Will, welcome back to the podcast. Nate, great to be here. Thanks for having me again. All right, so let me go through the list here. You have bets for your sports betting ETF. Meta, which we've got to talk about that with Facebook, but you have that ticker for your Metaverse ETF. 
You have Nerd for the eSports ETF. I can keep going here. Deep, Subs, MVP, Byte that I just mentioned. How do you come up with these? Well, first of all, let me say coming up with tickers is the most fun part of the job being being an ETF issuer. That, that should come as no surprise. But, um, you know, we are still a small firm, so we don't exactly have, you know, a room of, of PhDs thinking up, you know, the best tickers in the world all day. But, but really for us, it, it, it always starts with the theme and the product itself. So once we kind of decide on a theme, it's constant brainstorming. It's an iterative process. You know, the best ideas come probably in, in the shower or something like that. But you can imagine, you know, when you're talking about sports betting, is it is it gamble, wager, bets, kind of all these words come to your mind. And then um, a little bit of inside baseball, you know, you actually have to go to the exchange that you're planning to list on. And, and oftentimes, you know, your first choice might not even be available, even if it's not, you know, a listed trading ticker. So it's constant back and forth um, and, and, and really kind of just trying to figure out what's the best kind of most catchy, most appropriate ticker for a given theme, but it starts with the theme. I can only imagine the ticker symbols you currently have reserved at the exchanges. I would absolutely <laughs> love to see that uh, highly confidential list. Uh, but, Will, <laughs> in, in all seriousness, like how, how important do you think tickers are? So let's take your sports betting and iGaming ETF. L- let's say it had a ticker of, uh, I'm going to go with loser. So L-U-S-R. <laughs> I just came up with that, and you can see why I don't do this for a living. But like, like, would that ETF still have the same amount of assets if it had that ticker symbol? You know, I, it's 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 always difficult to say, but but you know, I don't think so. Now, losers an interesting one actually, because if you're investing in the sports betting companies, maybe you want the the betters to lose, but that but that's <laughs> that's for another day. You know, I really view tickers really, especially in today's world that's driven by you know short attention spans and social media. Tickers really have become uh, the brands for companies, but especially for ETFs, and really each ETF is its own brand. I mean, if you ask you know, 10 people on the street, uh, what the full name of QQQ was, I, I doubt many would really know what it was, but, but they would know QQQ is the NASDAQ and QQQ is technology. Um, and kind of when I look at, um, you know, what, what a ticker can do for an ETF, I, I think it can be a major differentiator, especially when you're talking about crowded segments of the ETF market, right? Where can you differentiate? You can go fees, you can go different basket, um, but oftentimes, that's not always so possible. That said, we usually try to be first to market in a theme, but if you're not first to market, how do you differentiate? You need a ticker that someone can remember that when they see it, it sticks with them and it helps with virality and, and they share it with their friends. And, um, you know, one, in one case, believe it or not, we actually got a ticker that was so good and we're working on this fund now, but we got a ticker that was so good that said, we said, you know, we're, we have to launch an ETF using this. Um, so in that in that rare instance, the ticker preceded the the theme and the idea for for the fund. But I view them as hi- highly important. I mean, it really is the ETF brand um, in the market. Okay, so on this topic, I have to ask you the question that I know everyone wants to hear from you on, which is, what did you think of Facebook changing their name to Meta? You have the ticker. Meta, M-E-T-A, they went with MVRS, which clearly is not the same thing. I think, Landslide, you have the better ticker. But, you know, I look since this announcement, the trading volume in your ETF has spiked. You've seen some nice inflows into the fund, which you'll take that, right? (laughs) Well, look, we'll absolutely take it. Um, To your point, it's, you know, we've seen, you know, $20, $30 $20, 30000000 million notional traded over the past week kind of per day. Yesterday alone, we had over uh, $30 million in inflows, and it's coming both from, from retail and institutional investors. But really, putting aside the, the ticker itself, I do happen to agree with you that, that Meta is a better ticker than MVRS for the Metaverse. But with that being said, really the bigger story here is it's kind of a validation of the thesis underlying Meta, which is this concept of the Metaverse, right? You have, um, you know, Facebook, uh, I, I'm going to still call them that at least for a little while. Um, really, you know, they're changing their entire brand identity, their entire kind of company to focus on on the metaverse, and they're really going all in. Really, what I think that's going to do for for um, us and for investors is, you know, investors are, are are starting to buy into this concept, this vision of the metaverse, but might not want to invest directly in, in, in one company. And I think. It's such a big vision, the concept of the metaverse. Many companies are going to build it. Many companies are going to be involved. And that's led to interest in our ETF. But 
but certainly having the ticker of, of one of the top five, maybe Tesla passed them yes a couple days ago, which is crazy. Um, but top five largest companies in the world, you know, we'll, we'll take it. No complaints. Can you talk a little bit more about the ETF itself, the Roundhill Ball Metaverse ETF, which, by the way, this actually does own Facebook or Meta, about a 6% allocation last I checked. But you have a unique partnership with Matthew Ball, who I think anyone who follows the space, they probably know who he is. Can you talk about that partnership and, and just explain a bit about the ETF? Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, Matthew Ball is kind of the foremost researcher, essayist, investor um, in the metaverse. And, and really kind of when we look at how can you, you know, the ETF landscape is getting more and more crowded. How can you kind of differentiate from competitors or potential competitors working with someone who is, is, is I know this word's overused, but really the, the foremost thought leader in the space really is a different. He um, put together an expert council of other industry professionals from NVIDIA, Rockstar, which makes Grand Theft Auto, A16Z, um, and, and collectively, they are um, Ball Metaverse Research Partners, his newly formed indexing firm. They are responsible for the index. So we track an index that they've put together, uh, rebalanced quarterly. Currently, it's about 40 um, names that kind of spread across seven different categories they've identified that are going to be key to building this concept of, of, of the metaverse. Um, and uh, when you look at kind of the basket, it's currently majority U.S. There are going to be some familiar kind of um, – large tech companies in there, but, but a lot of companies that are doing really interesting things in, in virtual reality, augmented reality, um, and really kind of building the backbone for what this metaverse will potentially become. Well, and on that note, I mean, how do you like to define the metaverse? This might seem like a dumb question, but I, I'm admittedly a novice. I mean, what exactly is the metaverse? I have two daughters. They play uh, Roblox all the time. Is that considered the metaverse? How do you define this? Yeah, so I'll try, I'll try and uh, do this justice. I would recommend to, to anyone listening that's looking to do a real deep dive, read Matthew Ball's work. It, it really is pretty, pretty thin. It, it is still somewhat an abstract concept. I think if you look at um, Roblox and Fortnite and Minecraft, those are probably the, the closest iterations to what this might become, at least from a virtual world standpoint. But at the very highest level, I like to view it as kind of the successor state to today's mobile Internet, you know, this will be a new medium that takes place in VR and AR um, and kind of spans across digital worlds that, that interoperate with one another, um, that, that spans to the, to the physical world as well. And when you kind of think about the way today's Internet works, you know, it's the distribution of, of static text, whether that's email or blog or images or video. And we're talking about a shift, a fundamental shift in the types of, of content that people are going to be um, transmitting um, and I think, you know, kind of when you um, talk about, you know, going to a, your, I'm sure your daughters might have gone to a virtual concert inside of Fortnite or Roblox. I'm sure they or, have. <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's kind of an early look at what this might become, but there's more work to do where, you know, instead of having 100 people in a given iteration, now we're talking about, you know, millions and, and, and a fully functioning digital economy that intersects with the, the real world. And, I would say, in addition to reading Matthew Ball's work, the, um, where Facebook announced their name change last week at their Connect conference, the, the presentation that Zuckerberg gave on his vision for what they want to do here, it, it, it's really kind of mind-blowing, Ready Player One type futuristic concept. You kind of got to see it to believe it and feel it if you're not um, like your daughters who are way ahead of you and I. Uh, in this space already. I was just going to say the same thing. I mean, it's amazing how rapidly technology is progressing here. And I think about my daughters, all of this does just feel so normal to them. They don't even think twice about it. And you think of anybody in the younger generation, that's going to be their expectation moving forward. Um, but uh, Whitwell, tell us a little bit about the CTF you launched last week, the Roundhill IO Digital Infrastructure ETF, again, ticker BITE, because as I think about that, the metaverse will be accessed from laptops and certainly mobile phones and those sorts of devices you need to have that infrastructure in place certainly the internet infrastructure in in, in place was that one of the impetuses for launching this the ctf um you know it fits very nicely um but we kind of view it as a standalone but it really does fit very nicely i mean if you think about the amount of data that you know we need to transmit to be able to have a, an immersive virtual reality experience in someone's 
living room, you know, anywhere worldwide, that's going to mean that we're going to need hard assets and digital infrastructure to quite literally deliver, you know, high-speed data and Internet to everyone across the globe, whether you're, you know, playing Roblox or, or trading cryptocurrency or you're in the cloud using software. All of this relies on these kind of hard assets. And, and when I look at what we've done with Byte, um, which consists of cell towers and, and fiber and cable and data centers and last-mile transmission, you know, th this is kind of a, a picks-and-shovels play off of the metaverse. Obviously, it goes global, you know, it goes beyond that. It's not just this concept of the metaverse. You know, you need it to watch Netflix. But it really is kind of that picks-and-shovels play. And, and kind of what, what I get really excited about um, with regards to Byte and this digital infrastructure concept is, it's, it's, you know, in the U.S., we're pretty far advanced. But, it's, you know, especially in emerging markets, a lot of this is still getting built out. Um, and, and Internet penetration and smartphone penetration is only going to continue to grow. And that's going to mean that this, this physical infrastructure side of things, that it's not as sexy, um, you know, uh, at first glance, is going to be absolutely critical to kind of um, drive the, the future of the Internet. And did I see correctly that the index partner on the CTF is actually an anonymous Twitter account? Is that correct? <laughs> that, that is correct. Um, and I think it speaks to the power of Twitter. But um, believe it or not, I was in a, uh, a Twitter Spaces, which is kind of their live audio feature, chatting about Bitcoin ETFs with just other anonymous people on Twitter. And I kind of threw out there, um, you know, if anyone ha ever has any, any great idea for an index, uh, that they'd love to see turned into an ETF, hit me up. And Compound248, that's his, his handle on Twitter, reached out to me. We had an a, you know, initial conversation. I hadn't even thought about digital infrastructure as a concept. And I said, this is, you know, this is a really interesting idea. I don't think there's anything else out there. And on top of that, um, you know, Compound248, he's an incredibly smart guy. He runs a hedge fund. He's, a, you know, he's an ex-institutional investor at the very highest levels. I mean that that speaks to the power of you never knew you never know who you're um, you know you're you're conversing with on Twitter or the or the metaverse for that for that matter right um, but that is how that that came to fruition believe it or not well I'd love to have you talk just a little bit more about this intersection of social media and ETFs because we mentioned Matthew Ball in Meta uh, he has you know a significant following on Twitter you just mentioned the anonymous Twitter account with Byte even if I look at your pro sports media and apparel ETF ticker MVP I know you have a marketing partnership with Joe Pompliano can you just talk more about this as you describe power of Twitter power of social media yeah I mean for anyone listening that's not active on Twitter I like I, I've completely replaced LinkedIn with Twitter let me just say I'm, I'm sure you're the same I'm exactly the same <laughs> and I don't touch Facebook by the way even though I know it's a big allocation in in meta I don't I don't use Facebook that's okay nor nor do I the future is is, is not Facebook blue <laughs> anyway um, but no when I look at at kind of Twitter and you combine that with what's going on in Substack like the these um, you know, open source, not open source, but these kind of user generated platforms are in a lot of ways, the new cell side research and replacing um, kind of what we think of, you know, in terms of traditional investment research and, and the way that, um, you know, you can learn from, you know, incredibly smart people has, is, is unlike what it's ever been before. And, and for us, you know, Social is really a way to connect with all types of investors. Like I mentioned, you know, uh, our partner on Byte, you know, who would who would have known that he was as sophisticated as an investor as he was, um, you know, w without having spoken to him. But but that being said, you know, social um, is is still you know a highly regulated area for us as an RIA and as kind of everyone else in the space. I'm sure can appreciate, but it's very effective for brand building. It's effective for um, sharing information on themes and trends that are going on in the markets. And I think I kind of have to tip my hat to Cassie Wood and Ark because I think really when you look at how they've built their brand, a lot of it is social first. Now, it's, it's not just Twitter, but it's, it's their YouTube videos and their webinars and uh, their newsletter, and it all comes together. But, but really, it's kind of changed the game. And, and, and um, Nate, for a little more context on how we operate, we have zero outbound salespeople. Now, we're not multi-multi-billion dollar firm quite yet, but we've grown from zero to 700 million and being social first and internet first and trying to connect with as many people as possible that way. So I think the world has changed. Um, you know, younger investors learn about 
ETFs or stocks or, or crypto on Twitter and Reddit and Discord. They're no longer learning about it necessarily from a broker. Um, and that's just, that's just an exciting concept. And it's introducing more people than ever to ETFs in particular, which goes without saying, but I'm a fan of. Will, I have to ask you, I always see a lot of back and forth between you and Ramp Capital on Twitter. So Ramp has something like, I, I don't know, 260,000 followers or something like that. But I'll be honest, I've been expecting you to do something with him on the ETF side. You've probably seen me tweet about this. I actually mentioned this on the podcast, I, I don't know, maybe two months ago. Have you ever approached Ramp or are you going to give me a no comment here? <laughs> we love Ramp. <laughs> At Round Hill, we have a great relationship with Ramp and, and what he's done with WeRamp, which is kind of this uh, crowdsourced um, crowdsource, uh, investment portfolio. The only problem with Ramp, though, and I told the ticker Ramp's taken. Bring oh, it no. To the beginning of our conversation. So we have to wait for live Ramp to get acquired. But if, if, if Ramp has a great idea with another ticker, he knows where to find me. So that was actually my idea, because you're right, Ramp does this poll every week to uh, to select stocks or ETFs. I feel like that should be the ETF, right? The Twitter picks go into the ETF, and then you have the ticker symbol Ramp. It just seems absolutely <laughs> perfect to me. Um, okay, Will, before I let you go, um, I want to make sure everyone listening knows that you owe me a beer, because you bet me that a Bitcoin futures ETF wouldn't be trading in October. I tried to tell you this was happening, but you didn't want to believe me. What do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> Well, I, what do you what, what do you prefer an IPA or a logger? But uh, besides, <laughs> besides that, you know, I I, I am surprised. I, I'm you know I don't love the future structure. If I'm being honest, um, better than nothing. The, the SEC really should consider approving the spot the spot Bitcoin ETF. But I was thinking it would be at least 2022 based on the information I was hearing and what everyone was saying. Um, but I'm glad something is out there. And there's an option for investors. But uh, maybe we'll need to place another bet where I can get a beer on, on when Ether gets gets approved. Hey, I'm always open. I feel like we have so many bets running around in the ETF <laughs> sphere. We need to put it all on the blockchain. But we'll always enjoy connecting. I do look forward to getting that beer in person at some point. But congratulations on everything you've built and, and you're building. It's really fun to watch from my perspective. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. That was Will Hershey, co-founder and CEO of Roundhill Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Eric Pan, CEO of the Investment Company Institute. We're going to discuss this proposed ETF tax change. And then Bill Davis, founder of Stance Capital, will highlight their approach to ESG investing and walk through the Stance Equity ESG Large Cap Core ETF. Until then... Have a great week, everyone.